Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. If you've joined me before, welcome back. If this is your first time here, welcome. At the Logical Christian Podcast, we look at what's going on in the world of current events, politics, science, and whatever the mainstream media feels is important to tell us, but rather than just accepting their spin and swallowing their narrative, we look at it logically, and we look at it as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you want to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. If there's one thing we can say about our world, it's that it's about as stable as stable can be. Well, if you define stable as the oldest person in the world shuffling along while clutching to the shopping cart, you know, the one with that shorter, wobblier wheel, with a slinky perched on top of a jello mold set on a piece of fine china, well, fine chinette that's quickly moistening and starting to sag, you know, from the jello, balanced across the top of that little baby seat area in the middle of a California earthquake. It's about that stable. Look, all I'm saying is that the world we've always thought we knew, we may need to adjust our antenna a bit. Things are going to get real fuzzy real fast. Have I mixed my illustrations enough? On today's episode, we're going to try our rootin' tootin'est to figure out where the difference is, then we'll enjoy a bit of America's favorite pastime, and finally we'll pursue our dream of doing nothing. So grab your magnifying glass, load that cheek up with some high-quality chaw, and put on your favorite couch-sitting pants, because one thing that won't change is, here we go. How many of you remember this? One of these things is not like the other. One of these things just doesn't belong. Can you tell which thing is not like the other before I finish my song? Now I, for one, am transported back to my younger days when I had to intensely study the four objects that were being presented for my careful consideration. Back then, there was no pause of the television as I calculated all of the possible permutations and combinations of the objects I was being commanded to classify. I had a set amount of time, and time was rapidly ticking by, the sand in the hourglass quickly dwindling, stress mounting, the sweat beads forming on my brow as the song was mocking me, quite, quite obviously coming to its inevitable conclusion. My mouth going dry, breath quickening, heart racing, it's, it's now or never. The time is up. The findings of my careful analysis must be presented. Closing my eyes, fearing the worst, I blurt out, It's the sock! The sock is different from the duck, the pig, and the cow! It's always been the sock! Anybody else? Or is that, is that just me? Well, it turns out that not all childhood trauma is bad. In this case, the relentless, almost militaristic demands on me to spot the one of these things that was, although so cleverly disguised, clearly not like the other, has helped me to see the world with a clarity that others quite obviously lack. A case in point, from EssentiallySports.com, headline, How does Michael Phelps' physical superiority aspect factor into the recent trans-athletes debate? Now, I know, for those of you without the intensive training I had as a child, a look of bewilderment has crept across your face. Fear not. Allow me to be your guide, your eyes, seeing past the confusion to lead us down the path of discovery to our ultimate destination, clarity. The article starts off with the author describing what I thought was was me. I mean, I'm looking around thinking maybe he tapped into my security cameras, but as it turns out, he was describing Michael Phelps. <laughs> I'm sure you can understand my confusion. As the description uh, that, he, that he gave... Anyway. So the premise is this. Michael Phelps as an athlete, specifically a swimmer, is one of the finest machines out there. He comes from a family of swimmers. He's got great genetics. He literally produces half the lactic acid of other athletes. I mean, that's the stuff that fatigues your muscles, right? Makes them feel tight. Eh, you know, like when you stand up from your chair twice in a relatively short succession. Again, just me. I, anyway. The article describes him as 6'3", 194 pounds. <laughs> I'm 5'8". I went more than that. Uh, let's see. He's 6 foot 8 inch wingspan. He has size 14 feet. No doubt he is an impressive specimen. And when combined with his obvious talent and his hard work, he is arguably the best swimmer uh, ever. The question the article asks is, based on his clear superiority, should he be or should he have been allowed to compete as a swimmer? Now, without being able to see you, as far as you know, I know that the look of bewilderment on your face, if anything, has become more intense. 
Stick with me. The phrase that pays here is biological advantage. And this is where the author, and he's not the only one, makes a leap of logic that should not be, um, leaped. If Michael Phelps has a biological advantage over his competitors, and yet he's allowed to compete, how can we say that someone like pretend female, Leah, and you can't spell liar without Leah, Thomas, must be allowed to compete in the women's swimming division, as all he has is a biological advantage, just like Phelps? Aren't we being hypocrites by selectively choosing what advantages are allowed and what aren't? The author presents both sides of the transgender athlete debate. Quote, experts who oppose their participation are of the opinion that trans women are biologically stronger than cisgender women, thus leading to an unfair advantage, which is a blatant contravention to the fundamentals of sport, fairness, and a level playing field for athletes. And then, quote, on the other side of the debate, the pro-trans athlete supporters are of the opinion that trans athletes have a biological advantage and should be celebrated for that reason. He then moves into what the debate has currently degraded to, testosterone level. How high is the level? How does the body use testosterone? He goes on to cite the trans experts, quote, the concept of hyperandrogenism, or higher levels of testosterone in trans women, needs to be well understood before undertaking this debate. Pro-trans athlete experts are of the opinion that hyperandrogenism is a mere gift and should not be a factor in alienating trans athletes. Moreover, these experts are of the opinion that hyperandrogenism should be considered a biological advantage, as the fundamentals of sport continuously talk about the inclusivity of marginalized social groups. These experts are of the opinion that trans athletes should continue to participate in regular competitions for the sake of inclusivity. They have also reiterated that being a trans person should not be considered a defect, but rather normalized and celebrated. So see, just because the man that's now pretending to be a woman so he can participate in women's sports has a higher level of testosterone, that's just a biological advantage he has as a woman. It should be normalized and celebrated, not debated or disallowed. I mean, men are just women too. The experts believe that the hypocritical stance is allowing people like Usain Bolt and Michael Phelps to compete despite their biological advantages, but condemning trans athletes because of their hyperandrogenism, or in layman's terms, condemning men with men's levels of testosterone competing as women. The author then moves to an even more obscure argument. Now, if you were asked how many transgender adults are in the United States, what would you think? 10%? 20%? More? Less? Turns out there are less than 1% and really closer to one half of 1% of the adult population that identify as transgender. But the author then moves into an area comprising less than 0.02% or 25 times less than transgenderism, something collectively called disorders of sex development, or DSD, or more commonly called intersex. These are people that, at least in part, we would know as hermaphrodites, people that for whatever reason developed both male and female characteristics and traits. He cites one such track and field phenom, a runner identifying as a female named Castor Semenya, probably have that wrong, from South Africa. Now, finding information except for the basics is kind of difficult, but she's apparently a track star, a double Olympic gold medalist, three-time world champion running the 800 meters, and simply can't be beat. The medical specifics are scarce, as I said, but this individual was born with testes, but without getting too graphic, did not develop the rest of the male genitalia. This apparently caused her to be gendered as a female at birth and has been living life as a female, although... When you look at her, you can definitely see that for a woman, she is very, very masculine looking. There was apparently a large amount of contention from other countries and other athletes about competing with someone that they consider to be very obviously male. A series of medical tests were run with information leaking out that she had very high, very male levels of testosterone. This then gets into the area of how much testosterone is allowable for an individual to compete against other women, medicines and treatments that lower the levels, tests to determine how the body utilizes the testosterone, etc. So, is she a she? Is she a he? Should she be allowed to run against women when it's very clear that 
she has very masculine advantages over her fellow runners? I'll be honest, I don't know. This is a very unique case. But what do we do with all of this? Well, here's what I know. Just as there are physical defects and mental defects that can happen in the formation process of a baby, all being a result of glitches in the DNA, in the genetic code, all as a result of sin, I personally believe that there are people that legitimately feel one gender, but present as the other. And for those people, I sympathize with their condition. As I know the stresses and pressures in my life, I can't even imagine having that level of internal confusion and turmoil to deal with on top of that. I don't know what percentage of the whole actually comprise what we would call legitimate gender-confused individuals. And remember, we're talking about less than 1% of adults in the U.S. For those that fall into the category of intersex, as in literally characteristics and traits of both sexes, I sympathize just the same. Once again, the confusion in their lives has got to be tremendous. With regard to sports or other areas where we divide male and female for specific reasons, specific competitions, I've advocated for quite some time that we forego feelings, we do away with worrying about physical traits, we ignore testosterone levels, we simply test chromosomes. If you're a very masculine individual, but you've got XX chromosomes, you're a woman. If you're very delicate and waifish, but you've got XY chromosomes, you're a man. The idea of biological advantage is therefore eliminated by doing this for people like Michael Phelps, Usain Bolt, Michael Jordan, Mary Lou Retton, Wayne Gretzky, Mia Hamm, and other elite athletes. They were just gifted with special strengths and abilities and are the best within their gender. There will always be a best. We can't just cry biologically advantaged until we eliminate everyone better than ourselves, which is the logical, inevitable conclusion with this faulty line of thinking. For those very rare individuals that have both sets of chromosomes, those that are intersex, I guess you'd have to take it on a case-by-case basis. And then maybe testosterone tests would necessarily come into play. But this is, again, one of those cases that is propped up by certain groups as a major issue in order to argue their point, but in reality is essentially 0% of the total. The stark reality is that biologically advantaged is normal and can be admired for what it is, but that's not the same as choosing how I'd like to advantage myself with my biology over others of differing biology for my own gain. Put simply, Michael Phelps, okay. Leah Thomas, not okay. Here's what else I know. Every human is created in the image of God. Every human was created the way that God created them on purpose. Why are some created with legitimate gender confusion? I don't know. But I also don't know why some are created with heart defects or cancers or why some are born with mental handicaps. But I know that God is sovereign in all of that. When God was calling Moses to free his people and lead them out of Egypt, Moses said to God in Exodus 4.10, O my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? See, God has made everyone exactly how they're supposed to be made, ultimately for his glory. And beyond that, I would have to speculate, and I don't think that would be wise or productive. I also know that our job as humanity is not to affirm the confusion and chaos inside, but to help the confused individual to find the one man that can bring them inner peace, hope, and joy. Regardless of the beliefs and feelings of any person, our job as Christians doesn't change. We are to be the hands and the feet to go and tell. And this will never change as we're all watching in real time the chaos and confusion increasing and the world, Satan, promoting and forcing the increase of this chaos because there's nothing Satan wants more than to destroy lives. Yet God is sovereign in that as well. Read the book of Job. And our role as Christians, again, doesn't change. We are the imperfect, yet God-ordained messengers of hope, of light, of order, of truth, and of love in this broken world. 
as it gets more and more difficult to be those ambassadors to a lost world, be ever more diligent to guard your own life and be a guiding light for others. When you hear the word America, there are a few things that all of us, without fail, absolutely positively think of every single time, without question. No, not racism. No, not sexism. No, okay, look, look, stop, all right? We all think of apple pie and the flag and patriotism, faith, freedom, sacrifice, hard work, and the national pastime. No, baseball. Look, you're not playing right. Just sit there and be quiet. I mean, who's the one with the podcast here? Uh, Yeah, okay, nearly everyone. Yes, I understand that. But still, just let me take this from here, all right? Unfortunately, as we all know, baseball has a dark side. And it should be no surprise, it's the same evil that we have running rampant in this country. A total disdain for black, well, let's be politically correct. People of color, they, them. I I used an X in people and spelled color with a U to show that I'm accepting of all people. Anyway, this absolute evil in its most raw form was made evident to the millions, or shall I say billions of viewers just a few days ago during a major league baseballing skirmish. In the land of fruits and flakes and nuts and some dairy, I think, and human poo on the streets, the San Diego Padres walked carefully, obviously because of the poo, into San Francisco to take on the San Francisco Giants. In the bottom of the second inning, the Giants were winning 10-1, and player A, because I don't know nor do I care who it was, for the Giants stole second base. Even the announcers were shocked by this, as apparently the world we live in now mandates that if you're winning by an unwritten, unspecified number of runs, you stop competing to your full potential. You know, to be nice. After the inning ended, between the innings, apparently that steal made Mike Schilt, the third base coach for the Padres, mad about the Giants being mean to them, and some jack-jawing started between Schilt and Anton Richardson, the first base coach for the Giants. This ended up with Richardson being ejected from the game. So this kind of thing happens with regularity, a player or a coach being booted for doing what they shouldn't. So why would I be covering this? I'm not a fan of the Padres, or the Giants, or California, or human street poo. Well, apparently Richardson was upset because Schilt practically put the shackles on him and made him go pick cotton. From Sports Illustrated via MSN.com headline, Giants coach says Mike Schilt yelled an expletive with racist undertones. Yikes! Can we just stop being racist for one minute? I mean, this is why we can't have nice things. So look, I don't want to get this wrong, and it's always best to hear this from the horse's mouth. Not that Anton is a horse. He's going to be mad at me next. So for context... Mike Schilt is white, and Anton Richardson is black, and neither of them actually look the color they're alleged to be. They both look shades of brown, one a much, much lighter shade, the other a much darker, almost as if they're both the same species, but with varying degrees of skin pigmentation. Eh, whatever. Facts don't matter these days anyway, so white and black it is. Anton released a statement as to what actually transpired leading to his racist, hateful ejection, and it sounds a little something like this. Quote, I wanted to clear up some stuff. What happened tonight was the third base coach from the San Diego Padres was looking in our dugout. I was like, hey, can I help you? At that point in time, he says, I didn't say anything to you. I wanted to know if I could help you look for somebody. At this point in time, he's walking toward our dugout, and then he says, hey, I was looking for Alex Wood. At that point, Cap came over to defuse the situation. At that point in time, I turned to Woody, like, Schilt's looking for you. At that point in time, Schilt started to walk back toward the third base. At that point in time, he yelled, you have to control that MFR." At that point in time, I went to the top step and said, excuse me, because I couldn't believe what I heard. At that point in time, Gibson, the crew chief, decided to toss me from the game. 
I say this because I think that his words were disproportionately unwarranted and reeked undertones of racism when he referred to me as that MFR as if to be controlled or a piece of property or enslaved. I think it's just really important that we understand what happened tonight. The second part that is me being tossed by that umpire empowered this coach to continue to have conversations like that with people like me. That's really unfortunate that that happened tonight. So first I have to say that what's really unfortunate is Anton's grammar and writing skills. And then at this point in time, if you were counting the dings, that's eight times he said at that point. But that's not my point. If you watch some video clips of this interaction, and there aren't really any good ones, it appears that there was a little more that transpired than what Richardson allegedly recounts for us in his statement. And he also neglected to say that the third base umpire was literally right there the entire time, hearing every word. And can we just agree that what Richardson said happened doesn't make sense that he would be ejected or that Schilt would say, you need to control that MFR? Clearly, Schilt had some likely unfriendly words to Richardson about the steal of second base, and although I think you should try to run the score up to the moon if you have the chance, you can definitely understand the frustration the other team feels, so it would stand to reason that Schilt was upset and vocalized it. But for Schilt to then say to the umpire or the Padres manager in the dugout or someone, anyone at all, that someone needs to control Richardson makes me believe that Richardson had some selective amnesia about what he might have said or done in response to Schilt. It also stands to reason that Richardson was ejected because the umpire that was, and let me state this again for clarity, right there also saw and heard what Richardson said and or did. But the insanity of this is that Richardson literally accused Schilt of making a slavery-laden remark, or as Richardson put it, it reeked undertones of racism. No, I think it reeked undertones of, you're an employee of the Giants, you're a direct report to your boss, the manager, Gabe Kapler. Arguments and comments are expected, but you're expected to walk within certain boundaries regarding your conduct and your comments. Maybe you need to get it in control, and maybe Schilt was just expressing his frustration to the manager or umpire or team in general that you needed to calm yourself down, a sentiment of which apparently the umpire agreed as Richardson left the game early against his will. Oh my goodness, like he was enslaved. <clears throat> Not Schilt. Further, Richardson has the gall to drag the umpire into it, saying that by ejecting the black man, he, a second white man, is doing nothing but enabling Schilt, the first white man, to, quote, continue to have conversations like that with people like me. So, Schilt is a racist, and the umpire is a racist, and it's just racist all the way down. <laughs> Got it. So, what do you think? Did that sound racist? If you think it did, well, listen on, I've got probably what's going to be a shock in store for you. From what I found in 2020, the demographics for the MLB were 57.5% white, 31.9% Hispanic, 7.7% black, 2.9% Asian or other, which if anything, that would be more along the lines of racist, right? Wouldn't you're going in the Asian or other category and shut up, be more racially insensitive? What race are you? <laughs> I guess I'm other. Now, the population of the United States in 2020 broke down as 57.8% white, 18.7% Hispanic, 14% black, 11.4% Asian, <laughs> or other. So maybe the MLB is racist, but that's because they apparently favor Hispanics. The whites are right in line with the demographics of the country, but those darn Hispanics, they're sucking up all the roster spots. So here's the deal. There's a saying that's used a million different ways. If everything is A, then nothing is A, right? In the business world, we often joke about our to-do lists and how this thing is priority one and that one is priority 1A and this is 1A.1 and that's 1A.1.1.A. .1 .1 .1 .1 .1 .1 .1 .1 you know, if everything is a priority, then nothing's a priority. Well, this saying is apt here. If everything is racist, then nothing is racist. And here's the shocker. Hold on to your seats here. What Schilt said may have been crass, unkind, 
blunt, sinful, wrong, or any variety of description you may want to tack on to it, it was not racist. One caveat to that, I'm making the underlying assumption that Schilt is not, in fact, a racist. Although the, the media and our leftist divisive politicians would have us believe that the entire world is racist, and by definition, that's anyone against people of color, in, unless they're a conservative, a Christian, or a Jew, and then their color doesn't actually matter, as they're also racist against the true people of color. So I guess really racist is more rightly defined as a political or theological ideology that goes against the accepted liberal slash socialist slash Marxist slash communist political platform. I'm just glad I could clear that up. That said, and despite the oft-repeated cries of racism, the reality is that, one, there are white racists, black racists, Hispanic racists, Native American racists, Asian or other racists, etc., etc. And two, there aren't really many of those, especially in the United States. An interesting area of study is hoax hate crimes. I found a site online called lists.grabian, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, .com, the link is in the notes, a listing of 177 hate crime hoaxes from February 2000 to February 2022. That's an average of about eight per year in their list. The most notable of recent history, of course, is the Jussie Smollett case, which... Wow, that was one of the worst hoaxes I've ever seen. And he is or was a semi-famous actor that probably had the ability to really stage something good. But, uh, wow. Anyway, working backwards on the list for just a few examples. February 20th, 2022, a black female high school student sprayed racist graffiti on her school's water fountains. February 2nd, 2022, a twice-deported criminal drew swastikas at Union Station. October 11th, 2021, a high school superintendent decried racist threats from a noose found hanging in a restroom, which, it just, it only turned out to be nothing more than just a student trying to kill himself. October 7th, 2021, Flyers advertising a no-blacks frat party were created and posted by a black college student. October 1st, 2021, a white male, who was actually a black woman, sent violent racist notes to her neighbors. And that's just the most recent five. Have fun looking through the list. It's interesting. As I've said before, racism and the fear of or cries of racism could almost be completely eliminated if we'd return our society to biblical principles. Racism has its roots deeply buried in the theory of evolution. That theory posits that the various races evolved differently coming off of whatever lucky monkey we happened to branch off of half a bazillion years ago. <laughs> Stupid theory. There's literally no proof, no evidence, no facts, no data to prove even a shred or a scintilla, which I think is some sort of a Mexican dish, of the evolutionary theory. It's just a religion of truly blind faith. The creation account found in Genesis is a very plausible, scientifically supportable creation narrative and is written in the style of historical account. Not poetry, not fable, not parable, history. If you want to start to end racism, the Bible says that we're all one race. All came from a man and a woman. That resultant population was funneled back down to one man and one woman and their kids and their wives. And here we are. There's a reason that we're all able to procreate with no problems. We're all the same species. We're all the same race. We just have different variations of the same features. It would take a couple generations, most likely, but if we dumped the stupid theory of evolution and started teaching creation, racism would all but dry up. Now, not hatred for other people. That's a bigger issue. But the moronic idea of, you're a different race than me, would go away. More immediately, though, where did the instant jump by Richardson to, he hates me because of who I am, come from? Well, I've heard a couple very good talks on this subject, and honestly, they cut to the heart when taken to heart. It's because he's created an idol of himself, or more accurately, his perception of himself. 
his instant flare of anger culminating in a claim of racism is because he did not get his way. He did not get what he felt he deserved. The sermons and talks I've heard on this state simply, we get angry when we don't get our way because we've made idols, little gods, of ourselves, and we feel that others should genuflect to us when we pass by. And if you think about this the next time you get angry, you'll find, as I have and as I do, this is 100% correct. All through the Bible, we see verses about anger. Proverbs tells us that a fool gives full vent. A wise man controls himself. A fool creates more problems. A wise man can calm the situation. Psalms tells us that anger only leads to evil. Ecclesiastes tells us that anger makes you a fool. James tells us that anger does not produce the righteousness of God. And and on and on and on. The stories of anger in the Bible are numerous. Cain killed Abel because his offering was not accepted like he thought it should be. Jonah was angry because he felt that he was not being treated properly by God and because he was not getting the satisfaction he wanted with respect to the Ninevites. King Herod was angry and slaughtered a bunch of children because he's the king, not someone else. Moses got angry and struck the rock because people were not acting the way he felt they should. Balaam got angry with his donkey because he wouldn't do what he wanted him to. And we can easily identify with these characters. We've set ourselves up as something to be revered and worshipped. And when we're not, when we're disrespected, when we're dismissed, we get angry. So what do we do about this? Well, for the non-Christian, in their current state, there really isn't anything they can do about it. It all comes down to them simply exerting their own will over their sin nature. Some are more successful than others at doing this. I don't know if Schilt or Richardson are saved individuals, I'd guess just based on probability that they aren't, and if that's the case, they're currently stuck. They can borrow from Christian principles and apologize and make nice and forgive and forget. They can try to do better next time, but if they're not saved individuals, they're relying on their own willpower and they're still placing themselves as the king of the mountain, which means they'll not only be tossed about by the world, told what to think and how to feel based on the shifting sands of man rather than a firm foundation of truth, but their emotions will dictate their reactions to the latest injustice that they're told to believe is real. For the Christian, and trust me, I'm not for one second claiming this is easy, I'm a walking example of frustration and impatience, this is part of our sanctification. Again, some of us have farther to go than others. We need to put God back on the throne, figuratively speaking. When we make ourselves an idol, which is displayed by our anger, We remove the sovereignty of God in all things, and we boldly state that all things are supposed to bow to our will, but we're incapable of making that happen, thus the frustration. I mean, think about it. We fix the car, but it still doesn't work, so we get angry because the car is supposed to do what we say. We prepare the meal, but it doesn't turn out right, so we get angry because the food is supposed to be as we desire. We study hard and fail the test. We get angry because our time was wasted, and the result was not as we wanted. And the child doesn't clean their room as we told them a million times. And we get angry because we are not being respected as we feel we deserve. The solution to this is to place God, the sovereign God, the omnipotent God, the loving God, back into his rightful place. To bow our will to his, to worship him, to praise him in the good times and the bad. Knowing that For those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And yes, that means even the things we perceive as bad or even devastating. That doesn't mean that all things will work for our prosperity or our health or even to our personal good in this lifetime. Rather, it means that God has a plan larger than just our short individual lives. And if we are among the called, that means that our lives ultimately bring God glory. This doesn't absolve us of doing the work. We are, and I am, still responsible for when we get angry, when we lose patience, when we do not praise God because of or in spite of life circumstances. We're all responsible for our choices, our sin. So we must strive to keep keeping God first. And it always comes back to the same things, meditation in God's word and prayer. The more we hide God's word in our heart, the more able we are to respond to what life brings us in a non-sinful manner. So as we all strive and struggle in this endeavor, let me leave you with this. You will fail. (laughs) We all fail, probably more than we succeed. Don't let that discourage or stop you. Don't let that shame you into trying to hide from God. Admit your sin, earnestly desire forgiveness, repent, 
and continue on. God is a just God and he will correct when he so chooses. But thankfully, as we struggle with patience and forgiveness, God is a perfectly patient and perfectly forgiving God. We can come to him in our sins and in our victories. We can worship him in our good times and our bad. And at no time will God turn us away or turn his back. And that's definitely something we can praise and thank him for. You know how when you have a smallish grease fire on the stove, how you're supposed to just pound it with a big splash of water? And then if that doesn't work, you run quickly to the garage and get the gas can. After that, if you're like me, you, you probably step outside, you know, just for a moment. A little fresh air after all that activity. Assuming a friendly fire, me- fire person happens by with their pumper truck. He, sh- he, she, they can move some dry grasses and old tires and styrofoam, pack it around the outside of the house. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? No? What? You never been to California? Uh, this is pretty much what they do. Their, their state is on fire, sometimes quite literally, and so they keep making the dumbest choices they can in order to see how high the flames can reach, so it seems. Case in point, from the LA Times via MSN headline, proposed bill would shorten California work week to 32 hours. Here's what to know. Well now, I'm a worker, and as a worker, I work a work week, and my week-long work week is greater than 32 hours, so as someone that can't see past the nose on my face, this instantly interests me. Well, I don't know. I can't see any possible problems with this uh, concept, you know, per the headline, but I guess we can look slightly further into the meat of this tasty, tasty article. As California is accustomed to doing, they're blazing the trails that other states are afraid to... Oh, well, blaze, I guess. Assembly Bill AB 2932 was introduced mid-February, which changes the official designation of a work week from 40 hours to 32 hours. This would apply to businesses with more than 500 employees, it would apply to non-exempt or hourly rate employees, and it would not apply to unionized workers or those with some sort of a collective bargaining agreement. We'll come back to those exemptions shortly. So what would this actually do? Well, by changing the definition of a work week, it would force employers to pay overtime for any time worked over 32 hours. If your hourly worker worked his or her normal 40 hours, you'd be paying 44 hours now. This gives a de facto 10% raise. Not too shabby, to be honest. It also stipulates that you can't lower the rate of pay for those affected by this change. So, you know, just give them the 10% raise and quit your whining. And, And that's it. That's the gist of the bill. Now, the genius authors of this bill, Democrat Assemblywoman, I think, I don't know, I didn't ask, uh, Christina Garcia, and Democrat Assemblyman, again, not a biologist, making some dangerous assumptions here, Evan Lowe, said that there are discussions about how this would affect salaried employees. Personally, that seems like it's pretty easy to figure out. Give us a 10% raise also. Boom. Equality. Christina added that they didn't include union or those under a collective bargaining agreement because, quote, I like to think of this as a floor, and oftentimes our bargaining agreements are better. (laughs) Oh, good. So why do they want to do this? Well, they said that the current model has been around since the Industrial Revolution, which is mostly correct, essentially the Henry Ford era, and that the days of COVID and people voluntarily walking away from their jobs has shown that the concept of work has changed. I think they probably accidentally overlooked the massive government-enforced shutdowns of work, plus the massive infusion of government cash, and the massive changes to the unemployment benefits that kind of incentivized people voluntarily leaving and pursuing a life of happiness, meditation, video games and Cheetos, and following their hearts. I'm sure that this was just a simple oversight on the article's author's part, but the reasoning given by the assembly... assembly humans would actually lead to an increase of profits and productivity for companies, which of course it would. As we all know, Democrats are very concerned with profits and 
productivity of big businesses. They practically won't shut up about how much profit, you know, they want businesses to make. Frankly, I get tired of listening to them drone on and on about it. Additionally, workers would have a better quality of life, less stress and better work-life balance. They wouldn't call in sick as much. They wouldn't have to take days off for this and that. They'd have better family lives and greater flexibility. Employers would see reduced utility costs and better engagement by employees because they'd definitely be more focused. So what kind of backing evidence do they have? Well, as it turns out, tons. For instance, the entire nation of Iceland ran a couple large-scale trials between 2015 and 2019 where nearly the entire nation, well, okay, not the entire nation, about 1% of the nation's workforce dropped to, eh, not 32 hours, but 35 or 36 hours. So, you know, about 2,000 people shaved off a couple hours per week, but they were still getting paid the same. And the trial companies apparently had no ill effects, while the workers said that they liked it. So now, quote, as a result of the trials, at least 86% of the country's workforce are now working shorter hours or gaining the right to shorten their hours. So on a tiny island nation, about 160,000 or so workers are now either working shorter hours. Now, I don't, I don't know if that's 36. Be, uh, it's important because 36 is not 32, or if they're trying to get their hours shortened. S- so that's Iceland. But if you're not eyes wide, jaw on your chest, excited and impressed by that little data point, get ready for this one. Kickstarter. Huh? The web-based project funding platform is they're trying a four-day work week in 2022. I mean, that's all we know about that, but, but see... Now, opponents of the idea, you know, like the far right-wing California Chamber of Commerce, that's sarcasm spread about as thick as I can get it right there, uh, said that it would stunt job growth in the state and create untenable conditions for employers. In fact, they flat out called it a, quote, job killer bill. The labor costs would go up. The chance for employers to be sued for violating something would go up, and it's just flat out not able to be complied with. Oh, what a bunch of right-wing extremist haters. So that magic number of 500 employees, it popped up again, didn't it? Uh, This was last seen in Biden's totally, totally illegal power grab trying to force a neither safe nor effective mRNA chemical into everyone that worked for a company of 500 or more, because viruses statistically and historically don't seek out small businesses of less than 500 employees. I, I know, I'm, I'm talking down to you at this point. You know all this already. And I find it funny that the left pushes college for everyone, as long as you, you know, take out their loans. And if you do, don't worry, you won't need to pay those back. We, we know debt makes you feel sad. And yet, By not applying this to the salaried employees, they're essentially penalizing them for going to college to get that salaried position. It seems almost like their stupid policies conflict when actually thought out to the the logical conclusion, as they always do. Now, I also like how they exempt the unions, although Christina is correct. The, uh, The unions will absolutely use something like this as leverage to make an even better deal for themselves, which will again hurt employers. Now, the bottom line is this. The model could work in very, very specific circumstances for the right country in the right state or province or whatever, at the right company, in the right conditions. An employer could make a choice to do something like this, and it may actually work out well. But as we know, politicians in general, especially those on the left, aren't really interested in the freedom to try things. No, they decide what's best for everyone, then force it down everyone's throat with no thought, no reasoning, no data, no facts, no logic. Can anyone say vaccine? This is their modus operandi, right? This is their MO. The the state knows what's best. Now shut up and do it. Looking at this logically... What would happen? 
Well, if companies needed their workers to work more hours, the extra cost would eventually be passed on to the consumer. You know, you and me. The consumer will face a 10% or greater markup on all their goods. Now, currently, we have an alleged 8.5% inflation rate. In reality, it's about double that. But let's just say it's 8.5%. Are you pretty happy about the prices of um, everything right now? So if this were to go into effect, think of it as a 10% inflation on cost on top of wherever we are by the time that goes into effect there. And if you think that these big evil corporations, you know, the, the greater than 500 employees thing, will just eat the cost, you're as delusional as these assembly, uh, uh, these assembly hominids are. In reality, this could force employers to cap hours at 32 thus producing less and driving prices up via supply and demand and decreasing the overall income of their workers. Or they could hire another shift of workers or part-time workers to fill the gap. Or they could change their wage structure for anyone coming in new so that they're paid less, knowing that through natural attrition, they would get back to 40 hours a week at the same overall wage that they had before. Bottom line, in no way will this be a good thing long-term for anyone. Now, let's look at a couple data points, shall we? According to Our World in Data, you can find the link in the notes, when you look at the GDP of various nations and calculate the dollars per hour, which is the measure of productivity, the United States, for the 67 years of data they've collected, has always been in the bottom 50% of total hours worked, and yet has been in the top 15 to 20% of productivity. In other words, the system we've got seems to work pretty well. Maybe, maybe just leave that alone. Additionally, studies have shown that in the U.S., the actual time on task for the average employee is about three hours out of every eight. That's 37.5%. So in a 40-hour work week, we're averaging about 15 hours of actual, productive, on-task time work. And yet we're still tops in the world for productivity. If we want to cut hours but keep pay, find a way to raise the percentage of time on task. If we were to raise our productivity to about 50% from 37.5%, we could all work a 32-hour work week at the same pay and be as productive overall, if not more so. Now, the caveat, of course, to this is, is that with production schedules, supplier timing, processing times, etc., etc., again, this isn't something you could just blanket mandate. But the concept is actually more realistic than what these yahoos are proposing that could be a discussion that would actually be worth having. But what's really going on here? Well, this is something that man has been trying to do for millennia. We do not want to exist under a system that God has set up. We fight against it in any way possible. Now, I'm not saying God set up a 40-hour work week. He didn't. But he did set up the seven-day week. He did set up a day of rest for every six days that you work. Looking at the average hours of daylight in Israel, because we might as well go back to the promised land, right? They get about nine hours of sun per day throughout the year. Say during what we call the Bible times, people worked seven, eight hours per day based on the availability of sunlight. At six days, that would be 42 to 48 hours of work per week. Now, obviously, this is just a thought exercise, but interesting nonetheless, wouldn't you say? Now, I found a site that asked the question, where does the seven-day week come from and why does it govern our lives? Well, they cite a book where the author says possibly Babylonia, but that's unlikely. He then points out that the Romans had a seven-day week, but only because there are seven celestial bodies they could see from Earth. Sun, the moon, and five planets. And coincidentally, just... At, you know, by happenstance, the Jews were observing a Sabbath every seven days around the same time as the Romans and their seven-day thing. And then the Romans and the Jews, eh, they kind of merged into a seven-day week. I, I kind of wish the author had maybe asked me or, or pretty much any Christian out there, we, we could have enlightened him as to where that seven-day week came from. Now, I found this article while I was looking for something I had heard before, the attempts that have been made in the past at alternate lengths of weeks. After the French Revolution, in an attempt to remove religion from their system, the French decided that a 10-day week would be better. I believe it was a 7-day work, 3-day off system. I think that's right. 
they quickly reverted back to a seven-day week as people were literally going mad. Apparently, and I had not heard this before, the Russians also tried to create a five-day week and then a six-day week. This was done in the 1920s and 30s, but clearly those failed also. Now, in the early part of the 20th century, apparently a proposal was put forward to create a 28-day-per-month, 13-month calendar to make everything easier. But if you do the math, that's 364 days, so you lose 1.25 days per year, and if you don't leap that one and a quarter days, given 180 years, the winter months would be the hottest part of the year, you know, speaking in U.S. terms, and the summer months would be snowy and cold. Uh, doesn't really matter, that idea was also scrapped. So, man would like to get rid of anything God that they possibly can, including time itself. Man would rather remake time in his image, rather than be beholden to a creator. Now, whether that's done with intent, as in the French Revolution, or not, man desires to be God himself. They do not want God to hold that position any longer. I think the other reason that this is being seriously considered is because along the same lines, it goes against what God has set up. Humans were created to work. Even if, hypothetically, sin never entered the world, mankind was tasked with tending the garden. When this era is over, when Jesus comes back to get all that the Father has given him, we aren't going to sit around on clouds with our halos, harps, and wings. We'll be working. Now, I don't believe we'll be toiling, but there is no reason to believe that we won't all have tasks and responsibilities on the new earth as was originally intended. Now, the Bible, of course, gives us general guidance on what our work habits should be. Starting with creation, we see that we shouldn't work seven days a week. We need to have rest. We're not meant to just go, go, go. Now, God, although not resting from the standpoint that he was tired or needed to recharge, he gave us the example because we do need to get some rest. We, we do need to recharge, and we need to focus on God. Sadly, and I'm as guilty as you are, we generally don't really rest, and what we consider resting is usually vegging out in front of the TV or something like that. Next, we all know this verse from 2 Thessalonians 3.10. In part, at least, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, obviously, there's context behind this statement, but the meaning is clear. In today's language, unless there's a reason we literally are unable to work, we're not to mooch off of others. We're not to beg for charity. We're not to live off of the state. Colossians 3.23 tells us how we should work. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Now, does this mean three productive hours for every eight? I don't think so. Probably not, right? Does it mean eight productive hours out of eight? No, that's pretty much impossible unless you've got a bladder the size of a basketball. So what exactly does it mean? <laughs> I don't know. You'll have to figure that one out for yourself. Although the Bible doesn't promise us great wealth and prosperity if we work, although if you're a hard worker, as if for God, you got a better shot than if you're not. But Proverbs in various places is clear that being lazy will bring about poverty. Solomon saw this when he passed by a field of a sluggard that was overgrown, the wall broken down, and he said, quote, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. So the world doesn't like these principles. The motto is now, get all you can. This is literally why socialism has failed everywhere it's been tried. And whenever the United States goes full socialist, and it's trending that way now, it'll fail here too. The basic concept of socialism is from each according to his ability to each according to his need. Now, in a sin-cursed world, this system is doomed to failure. It promotes laziness and covetousness you know, from each according to what they can get away with, to each according to how much they can get. This system would lead to sinicide, the killing off of the elderly, because they're takers, but they're past their useful time of being makers. For the elderly, or those that are in true states of need that do not have the ability to provide for themselves, where do they turn today? Well, to the government, of course. Unemployment, Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, food stamps... And the list of government programs goes on and on. 
these programs essentially got their big push toward their final form during the creation of the first and second New Deal during the FDR era. And before that, before the government stepped in with all of their, you know, stacks of cash that they took from the American population, sadly everyone died. Well, okay, that's not exactly correct. People turned to family for help, maybe friends, and then they turned to the church. Those that were truly helpless were taken care of. Those that needed help to get back on their feet were given only what was needed to get them through for a short time. Benjamin Franklin said, quote, I am for doing good to the poor, but I differ in opinion of the means. I think the best way of doing good to the poor is not making them easy in poverty, but leading or driving them out of it. In my youth, I traveled much, and I observed in different countries that the more public provisions were made for the poor, the less they provided for themselves, and of course, became poorer. And on the contrary, the less was done for them, the more they did for themselves and became richer. So the Bible tells us that we are to help those in need. In the teachings of Jesus, he said in part, For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. John said, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how could the love of God be in him? And James said, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So we are to help those in need. And and personally, my choice is to give my offerings to the church, who in turn, I trust to use in the best way, part of which is in helping those in need. I also have a handful of other charities that I help support with small donations, charities I've vetted that are doing things that are helping people in need, most of which also brings them the gospel while helping them with their base needs. But the state does not need people to be charitable, as being charitable is a Christian ethic. Those that aren't Christians but donate to charity, even if they're counter to Christian principles and Christian charities, are borrowing the ethic of charity from the Bible. The state, the government, needs us to rely on them. It needs to be our God. We give, by force, our charity to them. They distribute it out as the great benefactor. All hail the state, provider, protector, and savior. Think I'm exaggerating? Why did Obama early in his presidency want to limit, and eventually eliminate, the charitable contribution tax credit? Well, he knew that would make a step change downward in contributions, causing more people to rely on the state for help. If you recall, the Obama administration pushed to get more and more people onto the unemployment and other government assistance programs. The theory they tried to push was that it was better for the country and economy if more people were on unemployment. They would have money to put back into the economy. I guess that whole where did the money originate thing didn't really matter. You know, just get more on the government teat. That's what was important. And the examples of how this game has been playing out are endless. And this culminates in the state being God. I mean, look at the socialist or communist states around the world. Why don't they allow religion, or at least not free religion? Because the state is the only God that you really, truly need. The Bible, God, is very clear. We are to have no gods before him. He is to be preeminent. He is to be worshipped and praised. And he is our provider. We may work our job and get paid from our employer, but the fact that we have the ability to work and someone to work for is nothing more than a blessing by God extended to us. Even if we don't like our job, this is still true. Furthermore, Jesus was very clear that God is our ultimate provider. We have no need to fear for the future. God sees his children. He will provide as he's planned. But ultimately, we are to seek him. And that's what I'll leave you with from Luke 12. And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, 
nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to a span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? O oh, you of little faith, and do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And with that, we've reached the end of this episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. If you've made it this far, the odds are you liked what you heard. I'd greatly appreciate a like, a comment, and a review if you're so inclined. As you likely already know, it all helps with the algorithms. Don't forget to subscribe so you can be notified whenever a new episode drops. And finally, if you found this podcast useful or entertaining, share it with your friends, your enemies, your in-laws, your outlaws. If you want to reach me, you can do so at lcpodcast at outlook.com or increasingly I'll be using at lcpodcast on Getter. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic there is no armor like ignorance. But Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless. Thank you.